Uh, think about this for a second. I'm sure we've all experienced it's the end of a long day, and you'd like nothing more than to, to plop down on the couch and open your favorite book or, or to flip on the TV and just kind of veg, right, and just relax. But, but when, the, when the going gets tough, when, when, when you're exhausted, you need to know why it matters that you would be loving toward your spouse or towards your kids and, and kind of help end the day well, right? Help get the kids ready for bed or help clean up the kitchen after dinner. Uh, there's moments where we get tired and we would love to just kind of plop down and relax, but we recognize that we got to keep going a little bit further to, to finish the chores for the day. Or, or, or what about this? How about when, when someone's been hurtful or unkind or even untruthful toward you, Right? It's important to know the why of generous love. So in that moment where you think, oh, I gotta, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell them what's truthful. I'm gonna, you know, I've got some words to share with them. You remember why it's necessary to persevere, to push through, and to extend grace and generous love toward someone who hasn't necessarily been gracious or loving toward you. Knowing, knowing the why of, of generous love is an important thing. It matters. Uh, Michael Melamed was a, uh, a runner in the Boston Marathon, and, and long after the sun had set on the marathon, the, the official marathon clock had been turned off, and the crowds had all but gone home. This 39-year-old Venezuelan crossed the finish line. It was about 4 o'clock in the morning, 20 hours after the race had begun, and, and it, it was then that he finished the race. Now, what made Michael's race so significant is that he, he suffers from a disease similar to muscular dystrophy. This meant that he didn't run the race as much as he, he walked it, right? And as he reflected on his accomplishment, Michael stated, In any marathon, you have to know why you're doing it. Because in the last mile, the marathon will ask you. Part of, part of Michael's motivation for, for, for running the, or for competing in the, the Boston Marathon was in honor of Boston Children's Hospital because it was there that he went as a child and received treatment that helped him have a, a, a more full life, a life that, that he was able to live more fully and, and enjoy. And, and it was in honor of Boston Children's Hospital that he, that he competed in, in thinking about the children that were both being treated now and would be treated in the, in the future. And knowing that mattered, knowing the why that he was in the race helped him to complete and to finish the race. See, for, for Michael, it, it was important to think about his why, to help him get through that last mile, that last most difficult mile for him. <clears throat> I, uh, I was speaking with someone after the first service, and, and he mentioned, you know, the, the why for me when I run a marathon doesn't come at the last mile. It comes in mile 12, actually, and it keeps getting asked as we finish out the, the last uh, whatever, 12, 15 miles in the marathon. See, as followers of Jesus, this concept of generous love makes sense to us. It, it makes sense that God would call us to be kind and loving and, and even more so generous and gracious toward others. But, but there's going to come a time on your journey from, from Jerusalem to Jericho when, when you pass those markers and you see yourself going along where, you know what, you're going to get tired. The, the sun's going to get hot. You're going you're gonna to get hungry. You're going to twist your ankle. The, the journey is going to get tough. And, and in that moment when the journey does get tough, when it gets difficult, you need to know the why of generous love to push through, to persevere, and to live out God's very best for you. And so this morning, I, I want us to really consider the why of generous love. I want us to explore that together uh, from the passage in Luke chapter 10 that, that, we, uh, that we've been exploring together this summer. Um, so I want to encourage you to turn in your pew Bibles to Luke chapter 10. 
And we're going to pick up in verse 30, the story of the Good Samaritan, where, where Jesus talks about, the, the, uh, begins to explore the why of generous love. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 30. Let me read it for us. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Can we pause here and thank God for his word? Let's pray. Father, I I hope and pray that we never take for granted the gift that we are given in your word. That these are not words in a book, but words from our Heavenly Father, our Creator, to us. Lord, these words are alive and true, and I pray that your words would, would do a work in our hearts this morning. That, that it wouldn't be so much me and what I'm saying, but you, Father. That we would, we would have hearts and minds that listen and hear you, that receive from you, that are challenged or encouraged by you, Lord. And so, Father, we just thank you for this time in your word. We pray that it would bless us in the hearing of it and also in in being challenged to consider it more deeply. We pray this all in your son Jesus' glorious name. Amen. So as we mentioned last week, we briefly took a look at uh, compassion, the compassion that's the driving force behind this generous love. At the core of a person who loves generously is compassion. Now, in our passage, Jesus uses a word, a Greek word, splanknizomai, to describe what, mo- what motivated the Samaritan to care for the man who'd been beaten and left to die. Now, I don't know, if anyone ever said the Greek is not fun, I don't know who, you know, what they're saying, because this is fun, right? We don't, we don't get to say fun words like this in English, but, but you do in Greek. So if anyone ever wants to, you know, take a little journey into exploring Greek, um, you have the, 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 the carrot before you of saying fun words like this, splanknizomai. I mean... It it can just be fun and silly, and and who knows if I'm actually saying it correctly, by the way. I can tell you what the word is. I I can't tell you I'm actually pronouncing it correctly, but let's have fun with it anyway. Splanknizomai. Jesus uses this word to describe the the character of the Samaritan, right? The, the, The heart of the Samaritan as he looks upon this man who's been beaten and left to die. You know, sometimes as we, as we consider the, this word, you know, we think about it on the surface, surface but, but it's, I think it's kind of important to kind of more fully understand what Jesus meant by this by, by looking at the other uses of the word and to see how it's used elsewhere in the Bible. The noun version of this word is, is splanknon, and it, it actually refers to the, the inward parts of a person, their, their entrails. And it could be also used to describe the, the seat of a person, person's emotions in their life, right? So the, this inward place where uh, we sometimes think of the, the innards of a person, but, but even more so at, at that time, they thought of it as being the seat of their emotions. There's another Greek word, uh, splen, which is a, a sister word or, or the, the, the word we actually get in English for spleen. So, so spleen comes from this, this Greek word of splen. You know, all that to say that as we look at these words in the ancient Greek literature, the, the, we, we kind of understand that there's a more full meaning to the word than just what we see on the surface. 
The word splanchthon was, was used to describe where our strong emotions came from because oftentimes these strong emotions would physically impact a person in, in their abdomen, in their in, inward places, in their innards, right? I mean, you, you can understand that, actually. I mean, it makes logical sense. I mean, they, their, their concept of emotions in the physical body may not have been fully developed at that time, but it makes sense to us when we think about it that, that, that using this, our innards to describe where our emotions came from makes sense to me. You know, growing up, I, I, remember, I remember a particular day when my mom and I were driving to the YMCA. And I, so I grew up in upstate New York, just um, north of Albany, but south of Saratoga Springs. And it was kind of a more rural place. There was orchards. There was dairy farms. Um, it was a fun place to grow up. But you can imagine that, that you know, driving from place to place wasn't just like going under 95 and Route 1, and there you are at the ice cream store. Uh, it was a little bit of a longer drive. And so for us that day, driving to the YMCA, my, my mother and I uh, were driving along, and we were driving through uh, this road that didn't really have many homes on the road, and there was more open fields and some marshes. And as we're driving down the road, we could see this object in the, in the road. And so my mom very kindly pulls up alongside the object, but making sure that it's on my side of the car. Um, and so as I, as I look out the window and look down toward the ground where the object is, I notice that it's not just some object, but it's a turtle. It's a very large turtle that's crossing the road very slowly. And, and, and in the top of the shell of the turtle is a crack, and, and, and not just a crack, but a hole. And so I can see down into the turtle. And, you know, that day, I, I, I just remember vividly feeling this overwhelming flutter in my stomach. And I begged my mom, said, Mom, just keep going, just keep going, Mom. She's like, what, what, what's going on? And of course, you know, she's asking what, not moving. I'm saying, Mom, just please go, just go. And I remember, even, as, even today, as I remember back to that day, I, I remember having this, this fluttering emotion in my stomach, right? I can tell you, it wasn't because I was grossed out. I mean, it, it wasn't what I expected, but I wasn't grossed out by it. It was more like at this young age where I was, I was overcome with these emotions uh, the sense of sorrow for this turtle, like, you know, this shouldn't be happening. This isn't okay. I think that this is, this is the type of compassion, right? I mean, even though uh, my, even my own emotions and, and physical reaction wasn't fully developed, this is the type of reaction that Splanknizomai communicates in the Bible. That it's not just a matter of feeling sorry for someone else, but an actual more full and robust react, like emotional and physical reaction to something going on around us. This is the type of compassion that biblical audiences would have pictured when Jesus uses the word splanknizomai in the story of the Good Samaritan. It's not just some mental posture of our personality, but, but an emotion that physically touches you at the very innermost place of your life. In our passage of Luke 10, the priest, the Levite, and, and the Samaritan, they all saw the man who was left to die. But only the Samaritan experienced a moving in his innermost being that led to him to respond in generous love through binding up the man's wounds and providing for his recuperation. See, com- compassion moves us into this generous love toward others, like, like pistons moving back and forth, move an engine and move the car forward. Right? And they play an important part in how we respond to the world around us. They're not just these emotions that we can't trust or that are irrelevant. They, they play an integral part in how we react to the world around us. But compassion, it, it can't necessarily be seen in everyone, right? It's possible to see it in some, and it's also possible to not see it in some. 
It's possible to be like the priest and the Levite who didn't actually have compassion on the man who was left to die. See, I, I believe and I think that we all have the tendency to live according to what is right in our own eyes, regardless of the, income or the, or of the outcome or the impact on those around us. We all have this capacity to, to live more of a self-focused or self-aware life, unaware of the lives of the people around us. The, the book of Judges actually closes out with some words that are very true even of us today. Some words that I, I feel when I read are pretty convicting to me, right? Because I recognize that they're true even for me at times. They're not the best description. These words are not the best description of a people who, who trust in and are dependent upon God. But, but we realize that, that they're, de, they're descriptive even of us today. That, that we're no d- different than the, the people that these words were originally written about. The Israelites, right? In the, the book of Judges, in verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, we can read this. In those days there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The whole book of Judges is a, is a book about God's people abandoning him, uh, falling into this life, like kind of pursuing things, what was right in their own eyes, and finding that it doesn't lead anywhere that they would be pleased or happy about or, or content with, and then crying out to help from God, and God would send someone to come and rescue his people, and they would be rescued for a while, and then guess what? They'd, they'd start living life according to what's right in their own eyes, and they'd be back in the same place. And it was this cycle over and over again uh, of people doing what's right in their own eyes, needing to be rescued, God sending a rescuer, and then people abandoning God. And at the end of the book, we're not left with like a happy conclusion to the story. We're left with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's true of today. Man does what's right in their own eyes. Now, that's not to say that everyone does that, but, but you have to recognize, I hope you recognize, that, that it's true of us today because it's true of mankind then. In fact, it's true of mankind back to the Garden of Eden, that, that, that the, the origin of sin actually comes from mankind doing what's right in their own eyes, that, that Adam and Eve saw that apple and they said, yeah, that looks good, and they ate it even though they knew that they weren't supposed to. That, that this, this description at the end of Judges is really a description of human nature. Human nature that's been invaded by sin. That, that mankind does what's right in their own eyes. See, we're living in a world and a time where people are doing what's right in their own eyes. It's not just reading about it as being something that happened in history. It's recognizing that this is a description of mankind even of today. In other words, our own selfish living makes it possible for us, you and I, to live like the priest and the Levite and, and have no compassion on our fellow man and walk right by them when they're in a time of need. I, I don't want to condemn us. I'm not, I'm not mentioning this to make you feel guilty or to make you feel worse about yourself. That's not at all the reason why I'm saying it. But, but I'm, I'm saying it so that we understand our, our capacity, our, what, you know, our, our, our natural possibilities that lie before us when we journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, when we're on our 17-mile journey, that it's possible for us to be those very same people who have no compassion. This is, uh, this is a little bit of, I believe, what Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2, when he says this in verses 1 through 3. It says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of, of the air, 
the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul says it elsewhere in Romans. He says, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We, we, we all have the capacity to walk by the man who's been left to die by the side of the road. It's part of our, our, our nature in, in, being, in our capacity towards sin is to be one without compassion, to, 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 to kind of live in the, the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind. But God, God isn't done yet. That, that may be true, but God's not done speaking. He's still, he's still speaking. He still has work to do. See, just as we might wonder how it's possible for us to not have compassion, just as we look at the priest and Levite and say, how could they do that? How could they just walk by and realize actually we could be just like them? Just like that's normal for us to think, how is it possible not to have compassion? It's also normal to get to that place of realization and say, okay, we don't have it, so, so how do we get it? How do we develop this compassion? How do we have this same compassion alive in us? Well, I, I, think, I think we find our answer as we keep reading Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says this as we carry on in in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in, in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. See, I think as we look closely at Paul's words here in Ephesians chapter 2, we come to realize that the only way that we can know compassion and what it means to have compassion for another person is by personally receiving it first in Jesus Christ. So you can't, you can't know about it by opening up your dictionary or encyclopedia and reading the definition. You can't Google it and really know and understand what compassion is. I, I think it's, it's a little bit more like the difference between knowing someone and knowing of someone. I was at a meeting this past week with some young adults looking to do ministry on campus at Fairfield University, and uh, we were we were just kind of getting ready for the meeting to start. and And one of the one of the young adults from our church actually turned to me and said, "Do you know Do you know uh, so and so?" And it was a family that had, had uh, moved away from the area, and they weren't sure if I had uh, met them before they moved away. And it, you know, of course, this is a name that I'd heard before. So my response was, "Hmm, I know of them. I don't I don't think I know them though." I've heard that name, right? But I don't know them. I mean, has that ever happened to you where you've heard a name that you're, you're familiar with or it, it strikes a chord with you or you remember it, but, but you don't actually know that person, right? I mean, I think, I think that's what's possible for us. We can know of compassion without really knowing compassion. We can know that compassion's a word. It's a reality. It's, it's, what we, it's an ideal for what we want to see in, in relationship with one another, with people, but it's also possible at the same time to know of compassion, to not really know compassion. See, Paul, this is what Paul's talking about here in Ephesians chapter 2. In the same way, to, to know compassion, he wants us to understand that we need to experience it for ourselves, to, to go beyond just knowing of compassion and to, to know it for ourselves on a deeper, more personal level. You, you have to first experience compassion yourself through Christ Jesus. We have to first graciously receive God's forgiveness, his new life that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 2. God being rich in mercy 
invites you to be made alive in Christ. See, Paul uses a word here, a Greek word here, uh, called elios. It's, it's a word that conveys God's motivation for giving us this new life. Elios is, a, is another word in the New Testament used to convey the meaning of compassion. Out of the richness of God's compassion for his people, he, he lovingly sent his son to pay the price for, for our guilt. So we might be found not guilty in the span of eternity before our creator. All of this because God is, is rich. He's got lots of it. He's rich in Elias. He's rich in, in mercy and compassion. And so the first thing I think we understand about the why of generosity being found, or the, the why of generous love being in compassion is that that very compassion finds its source and origin in God himself. We can't personally know compassion and, and have it for others until we first receive God's compassionate love and forgiveness through Christ Jesus for ourselves. God is the source of compassion in this world. And if the Father is the source, then I believe his Son is the vehicle through which he extends that compassion to this world. In the first of his three letters that, that John wrote while imprisoned on an island, he writes these words in 1 John chapter 4. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is, this is the loving manifestation of God's compassion through, lo- the, through the life of Jesus, his Son. First into our lives and then out into the world. In, in the story of the Good Samaritan, Jesus gives us a glimpse of this very truth. Uh, the, the, the truth that can, compassion can only be found in Jesus. It, it's, it's the same divine compassion that's also found in God the Father. See, if we, if we look closely at the words that Jesus uses in telling the story, we realize that he uses a very specific form uh, of the word for compassion. And, and this very specific form is only used in a few key places. Jesus uses the word splanknizomai to describe the compassion that the Samaritan had for the man who was left to die. And it's actually, it's a verbal form of the noun splanknon that we, used, that we heard of earlier, but it's a very specific form because outside of the parables of Jesus, the only places that it's used is to describe Jesus as the divine, divine Messiah, right? That, 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 that this word is specifically used to communicate the fact that, that Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself. If we look at uh, the, the parable of, of the wicked servant found in Matthew 18, again, another story that Jesus tells to, to articulate a truth. The story didn't actually happen, but Jesus uses the story to articulate a truth. And in, in Matthew 18, uh, we're, we're told a story of, of a landowner who, who is calling into account those people that owe him money. And one of his servants comes to him and has no way of paying his debts. And, and the, 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 the servant begs for mercy. He begs for mercy from the landowner. And what do you think happens? The, the landowner has splanknizomai. He has compassion on his servant and, and forgives his debt and sets the servant free. By the way, th- this parable, I believe, it's a parable of the kingdom of God. It's, it's a parable of the promise of God's future for his people. 
And, and this type of parable, this, this parable that Jesus tells here in Matthew 18, I think is meant to be allegorized. So in, in essence, the characters in the story, the parts of the story, uh, all have a specific meaning. I think the landowner is God himself. And the servant is, is you and I, that as we come before him, we owe him a debt, and yet he graciously, mercifully, compassionately forgives us our debt and invites us to live with him. See, I think that's, that's the, 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 the splanknizomai that God wants to show his people. And in, in, in telling the story to his listeners, Jesus attributes this this. this Divine compassion to God the Father. He says, this is the origin of this compassion in the Father, the one who created you. Uh, similar to the, the parable of the wicked servant, the, there's the parable of the good, uh, the good Samaritan, and also the, the parable of the prodigal son. Right? We, uh, many of us know this story. It's a familiar story. Even if you don't know it in the, the biblical text, you probably have heard similar versions of this story in our world it's a story of a son who foolishly and selfishly comes to his father and says, I don't want my inheritance someday when you're going to die. I want my inheritance now. I've got a life to live, and I want to live it now with the inheritance you owe me. And so the father graciously gives his son the inheritance, and the son heads off and squanders his inheritance on foolish living, right? And we keep listening along in the story, and we find the son at a point in his life where he, he is, he's lost all of his income, he's lost all of his inheritance, to the point where he finds himself, the only way he can provide food for himself is by feeding pigs. And in that moment of feeding, of, of slopping in pig slop for the pigs to eat, he realizes that even his father's servants live better than he's living then. And in that moment of realization, he decides to return to the father and to seek repentance, seek forgiveness through repentance. And I think what we see is God's compassion even through this parable. Listen to the words in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 20. After the son had decided to return to his father, we read these words. He arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and his shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. See, the father's compassion led to him not looking upon his son with condemnation and judgment, led to him running to his son, embracing him, kissing him, clothing him, celebrating him, rejoicing that his son who was lost and now is found. That compassion compelled the father, drove the, our heavenly father to respond with grace and forgiveness. God's grace, his love, his forgiveness towards us is driven by this very same divine compassion. It's a holy compassion. It's, it's a compassion that's far greater than our finite minds can fully comprehend or understand. But Jesus didn't just tell stories about the Father's compassion. Jesus himself lives this divine compassion out amongst his followers, amongst the people. He, he, you see this in, in the, the miracle where he feeds the 4,000. 
Now, a little side note about miracles. Miracles have a purpose. They're more than just to show the power of Jesus. I think miracles are meant to, to reveal that Jesus is God himself. If you look back through the various miracles that Jesus performs in the Bible and you unpack what they're communicating, you actually see that they're communi- communicating the fact that, that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is God here on this earth, that not only does he have the power of God, but he is God. And specifically, as we look at the, the parable of the feeding of the 4,000, you're, you're not just left to see that God has the power to, to, to create enough food to feed 4,000 people out of such a, 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 a meager or, or simple offering, but you recognize that, that Jesus comes to do and say the things that God has said and done. That, that just like our Heavenly Father provided for his people in the wilderness with manna and quail, God provides for his people who are following him with enough food to feed 4,000. So as we look at the, the parable, or the, uh, the miracle of the, the feeding of the 4,000, I want to encourage us to, to, to see in this parable that, that it's not just a matter of seeing Jesus' power, but seeing that it, Jesus is God himself. And, and Jesus doesn't reveal himself as God, as God himself just with his power and his ability to perform miracles, but also in his character and, and in his actions. And I think here we actually see that, that, that Jesus' character is that of God's character. Listen to the words in Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. See, Jesus didn't just have one of a number of different words for compassion. Jesus had splanknizomai, one of the few places outside of the parables that Jesus uses to define compassion, the same compassion that God, our Heavenly Father, has. The Father's divine compassion has come to dwell among us through Jesus Christ. God the Father is the source of this compassion, and God the Son is the vehicle through which his compassion comes to this earth. And if we're to have a good Trinitarian theology, which I think we need to, a theology that recognizes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we recognize that there's a role for the Holy Spirit in this as well. See, after Jesus' resurrection and before we're told that he ascended back to heaven, Jesus promised his followers that he would send his Holy Spirit to dwell in his followers, to guide them, to direct them, to strengthen them, to teach them. Jesus promised that through his Holy Spirit he would come and dwell in us and never leave us. And so there's good news in that message for us. There's very good news for us. See, that very same divine character, that that compassion that has its origins in the Father and was brought to earth to live among us by the Son is now possible to, to dwell in us through Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. This, this is a little bit of what Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He says there, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, if it's, if it's really true that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, it, it, 
If I understand and if I say with Paul more and more that it's no longer Dan who lives, but Christ who lives in me, the more the world around me will see the divine character and compassion of God being manifest and, trans- and, and, and coming out through, through Christ in me. See, the kind of compassion that this world hungers for, it finds its source in God the Father, was brought to earth by God the Son, and is present in the lives of his people through God the Holy Spirit. But here's the thing about Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. They're more than just a truth to proclaim. They're words that require my embrace. It requires that we embrace these words and take them for ourselves. We can't just sit back and say, well, Christ lives in me, and so I'm good now. You know, like that, that we can almost like we can go on some sort of spiritual autopilot. I mean, that's, that's not what Christ living in me is. It, it, it's much more than that. I think that. I think we actually have to be careful because if we're not careful or intentional about Christ living in us, we could potentially grow uh, to almost be immune to the effects of God's compassion in our lives. We could become like the, the priest and the Levite who passed by the man left to die on the side of the road. It's almost like a, a version of spiritual leprosy. If you know anything about leprosy, it's, it's a skin disease, right? But part of the skin disease is that there's a deadening of the nerve endings in your body. And so uh, for those who have leprosy, and it's very rare this day and age, but was more common back in times that the Bible was written. But those who had leprosy, they would find the, their nerve endings dying. And so they wouldn't have feeling in, in some of their extremities like their hands or their feet. And the risk that's run is not so much that the skin disease causes these extremities to, to die and to fall off, but, but they end up putting their extremities in, in harm's way. Kind of like, you know, if we were to put our hand on the stove that's hot, you know, the nerve endings tell us that's hot, that's not good, take your hand off the stove. But if your nerve endings are dead, you leave your hand there. You don't realize that it's in danger. You're, you're numb to the effects of, of your nerve endings communicating with your brain. And your life is put in risk, right? I, I think it, it's similar with, with, with our faith, too. When our spiritual nerve endings become numb to Christ at work in our hearts, the, the, the compassion that God has for us, we, we become unaware of that compassion and, and the needs of the people in the world around us as well. When we're unaware and inattentive to Christ at work in our hearts and our lives, the, the Christ-like character being formed in us becomes numb and neglected in our lives. For, for Paul, life in Christ and growing in Christ-like characters such as compassion, it was not some, some sort of life to go on autopilot with. It was a life to, to cultivate, to, to tend to, to, to pay attention to, to, to care for like someone might tend to or care for a garden. Later on in Galatians chapter 5, Paul makes this point when he says in verses 24 and 25, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. There, there's an ongoing life with the Spirit, a, an ongoing life of dependence and attention and, and care for the Holy Spirit in us. See, I think we tend to the garden of our souls as we live by the Spirit and as we walk by the Spirit. If a, it's a life we live each day with intentionality, with our aim set at seeing more of Christ and less of me. More of Jesus, less of Dan. So how, 
how do I cultivate this Christ-like character and, and specifically compassion in my, my own life? How, how, do I, how do I walk by the Spirit? How do I live by the Spirit? Well, I want to briefly and, 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 uh, and practically give us a few ideas and encouragements on how you can cultivate this walking by the Spirit, this life in, in the Holy Spirit. I would encourage you, as, as you think of seeing Christ formed in you as, you, as you think about saying with Paul, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, I would in, in, invite you and encourage you to first cultivate gratitude. What do I mean? See, I think a grateful heart that's aware of the many ways that God's blessed us focuses our attention not on ourselves, but on our world around us. Oftentimes, we're not able to have a heart and a mind for God or others because we're so consumed with our own circumstances. I remember when I, um, when I, when I turned 30, uh, for whatever reason, I was kind of feeling sorry for myself. I know 30 is not that old, but it was, like that, it was that moment in my life where I realized I'm not getting younger, I'm getting older. And I think it was my birthday, Tara was off at work, uh, maybe Alex was napping, something like that. But I just had the thought, you know what? This is what I'm going to do. I want to, I want to write down 30 things I'm thankful for. Not really, I, I was, I, I'll admit it, on this side of things, I was completely unaware of, of the effects of what this would do. But I thought, you know what, I'm just going to think of 30 things that God's blessed me with. And, and, and I sat down and I started making the list of these 30 things that I was thankful for. Th- 30 things that God has blessed my life with. And before I knew it, my list was much more than 30. I think, if I remember correctly, I remember thinking, wow, I doubled that. So I'm thinking I got to like around 60 things that I was thankful for. And as I, as I got up from this little exercise, I realized I was no longer thinking about, about getting older or anything like that. I was, I was thinking about how thankful to God I was for the ways that he loves me and, and blessed me. And, and not only was I thinking about God and how much he loves me, I, I was actually thinking less of myself and, and thinking more of, of those other people in my life. And, and care, you know, having fun with Alex and and, and, and having a, a delicious dinner with Tara when, when she got home. and See, I, I think we're not able to have a heart and a mind for God when we're so consumed with ourselves. And, and developing a heart that's deeply aware of God's blessings, uh, it, it helps us to focus on him and others. So that's, that's a, a, a type of gratitude. Paul, Paul says to, uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, he says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So I think this is God's will for us, not because he wants his people just to be happy and to be thankful, but he recognizes that when we have cultivated a, a grateful heart, a heart of gratitude, we have a heart that is, that is prepared and, and attentive to being a people of compassion, concern for others, uh, ready to, to show love and, 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 and gratitude to God, our Father, and other people in our lives. So, so cultivate gratitude. Second, I want to encourage you to cultivate humility. The, uh, the theologian and author of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis, once said that true humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. In, in other words, true humility is not self-deprecating, but spending less time in your day thinking of yourself. True humility is not, not saying, oh, Dan, you, you, you poor, ugly worm. You've got no, no power, no strength. You, you're not the muscle that they wanted to move the, the 44 Wakeman over to 8 Wakeman. Oh, man, you don't have much, but God is good. Now, it's good to recognize God's power and authority and strength. It's, it's good to recognize those things. 
But true humility does not mean that you, 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 you tear yourself down and think less of yourself. True humility is spending less time thinking of yourself, though, right? I mean, think about, think about what your day might look like if a greater percentage of your time was spent thinking and praying, thinking about and praying for others, right? I mean, instead of worrying about finishing a project or, or getting, getting to your hobby, what if we spend that time praying for our neighbor's marriage, right? And that's just one example. And, and I, I just, just to say, too, it's not bad that you focus on doing your work well and finishing and completing a project. It's not bad that you have a hobby. In fact, I think it's pretty healthy if you have a hobby in your life. But if you're spending time worrying about getting to that hobby or if you're spending time worrying about completing that project, I think that's, that, that, that worry is taking away time and energy that you can commit to thinking about the other people in your life, right? So just a little example. Paul speaks of cultivating this type of character, this humility in Philippians chapter 2 where he encourages people to grow more like Christ. Listen to these words that he says in Philippians chapter 2. He says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ... Any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. By the way, there's that Greek word for compassion which keeps popping up. Any, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. See, the humility that Paul encourages his listeners to is ours in Christ. It shapes our minds to think of others over and against ourselves. It doesn't say that you're not worthy of God's love, but it says you are so worthy of God's love, I'm giving you that love first, and now think of others. God's calling us to, 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 to think of others more, to think of ourselves less often, right? So cultivate gratitude, cultivate humility, and, and lastly, finally, I want to encourage you to cultivate the garden of your soul through scripture, prayer, and reflection. A three-pronged ap- approach, scripture, prayer, reflection. It's a, it's a simple process. I, I don't think we need to overthink it. But it's a dependence on, on some spiritual disciplines. Now, the thing about spiritual disciplines are they, they are a means to an end. They are not an end in themselves. It's not a matter of sitting down and having my, my quiet time and then feeling satisfied that, I, that I've done that part of my life. They're, they're meant to shape and mold our hearts and minds after God's. They're meant to, 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 to orient us in a space where God can take our hearts and our minds and mold them after his as we, as we come to explore what his heart and mind is, right? I want to encourage you, search the scriptures for what God says about humility, about gratitude, about compassion. I mean, feel free to meditate on Philippians chapter 2 or on 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Flip to the back of your Bible and, and look through the concordance. Look at, look, at, look at the other occurrences of this word compassion in your Bible and, and read those passages. But don't just read them. Pray about them. Take, take the words of that passage and begin to pray as if they are your words. Pray, pray them as a prayer of desire. Pray them as a prayer of confession. Pray, pray them as a prayer of, of, of compassion for others. Right? Pray Pray the words of God's very own words that are a gift to us. And then take some time to just listen quietly. Put away all distractions and temptations and just listen. 
Be still and know that God is God. Maybe, maybe you can pray and, and listen quietly through journaling. Or maybe for you it helps to get outside and go for a walk and, and to reflect on the passage you just read. Or, or pray to God as you walk through uh, down a path. Whatever it is, uh, take that time to, to listen to God through prayer, through journaling, through, through reading his word. Cultivate your heart with God and ask him in prayer to give you a heart that knows his compassion. Not knows of his compassion, but personally knows his compassion. And ask God to give you the courage to extend that compassion to a world that's hurt, lost, and broken. See, I think God is the source of the compassion. The, the, the why of generous love tells us that we look to God as the source of this divine compassion. And that he shares that compassion with us in this life through Jesus Christ. And that very same life lived in Christ is the manner in which he, he extends his compassion to a broken, hurting, and lost world. Very much in need of God's generous love. This, this is the why of generous love. God's divine compassion. That's the why of where we live out generous love. God's compassion. See, knowing that answer, the answer to our question of why is vital. Just ask Michael Melamed. After 20 hours traveling the 26 miles of the Boston Marathon, he neared the end of his marathon, and it became quite the challenge. It was almost actually 4.30 in the morning. Rain had been falling. The course had gotten quieter. The crowds that normally are an encouragement to you as you're running and, and they're cheering you on, they'd gone home. There were a few people that, that were with him, but other than that, it was, it was a very quiet street. As he turned down Boylston Street where the finish line was, it just so happened the sky opened up, and if it wasn't enough, more rain poured down on him. It wasn't just a sprinkle, it was a downpour. <clears throat> Now was when he needed to know why he was out in the rain at 4.30 in the morning, determined to finish the race. The, the marathon was asking him, why are you doing this? Come on, you're tired, just go home and rest. The marathon was saying, it's not worth it. You did a great job, you've gotten this far, that's enough. Now was the time that he needed to, to know why he was out there. The marathon was asking why, and it was his answer to the question of why that kept him moving one foot in front of the other until he crossed the finish line. See, he thought of the doctors and the nurses that cared for him at Boston Children's Hospital. He, he remembered how he was blessed by their care. He remembered how he had received their love and their compassion so many years ago. He thought about the children who were being cared for by them right now. And he thought about the children who would continue to receive care from Boston Children's Hospital in the days ahead. This thought, this answer to the question of why am I out here, kept him persevering and moving forward. See, I think on our journey from Jerusalem to Jericho, as we walk down the path and pass certain mile markers, those mile markers are going to say to us, why are you doing this? Why are you, going, why are you going down this path? And we're going to need to remember in those moments where God is inviting us to show generous love, when, when he's inviting us to, to be a compassionate people, we need to remember why we are people who can extend generous love, not in our own power or our own strength. That generous love, it, it, it finds its source in the divine compassion of the Heavenly Father. 
It's extended to us through his son, and it's shared with a lost, broken, and hurting world through the Holy Spirit alive in each of every one of Jesus' followers. So may we never forget why we live out generous love toward others that we first experienced in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we thank you that that you remind us not just of one more thing that we are to do, but you remind us that you invite us first to become, to become your children, to become objects of your love, to become recipients of your compassion through Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we think of the world around us, as we think of uh, wanting to develop a heart that, that is compassionate and, and, and concerned and aware of the needs in the world around us, Lord, we ask that you would give us hearts that are attentive to those needs because we are aware of how we have been blessed in Christ Jesus, of how rich we are because we have a God who is rich in mercy, who has shown that mercy to us. Lord, I pray for those of us this morning who know of compassion, but don't quite yet know compassion themselves. Lord, who, who, who haven't yet felt that flutter in their stomach at the realization to know how deeply loved they are by you. Uh, who would understand, Lord, that your love is so great and so holy and so so otherworldly, Lord, that, that it's beyond our full comprehension, yet you are doing that work in our lives. You are revealing to us the meaning of your love, the meaning of your compassion. So, Father, I pray that more and more of us this morning, we would know compassion. We wouldn't know of compassion. We would know compassion. And that compassion would drive us to be people who generously love others and love you. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for Jesus for his love, for for your grace, for your forgiveness. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's continue to